Hello, I'm Evelyn Santoro, and thank you for joining us on Talking Independence. Today's guest doesn't need an introduction. We all know Professor Jenny Hocking, and for those who don't, she is an Australian historian, political scientist, and biographer who notably researched the life of former Prime Minister Gough Whitlam, which then led to seeking the public release of the Palace Letters, which we really want to talk about today. Professor Hocking, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you very much, Evelyn. It's a great pleasure and congratulations on your podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you here. There are a few things I want to ask you, but first, can you tell us about your very detailed research into the life of Gough Whitlam and particularly your uncovering of the new information into the dismissal in 1975? You know, there are, there are many people who don't know the details haven't lived through it, and it was described as a discovery that you've made of historical importance. Look, I started work on Whitlam's biography um, in the early 2000s, and I'd already written two biographies, um, one on his um, Attorney General Lionel Murphy, who also became a High Court judge, and one on the Australian author, communist author Frank Hardy. So Mm -hmm. I was an experienced um, biographer, which I think was a very good position to start from when, when working on a biography of someone such a such a well known figure, such a strong figure, a strong personality. Um, he was the uh, he's the only bio- biography I've done of a living person that I was able to actually speak to him, and this was a wonderful experience to actually be able to do lengthy interviews with him. And he was so generous with his time; it was just exceptional. And the other thing, Evelyn, is he never actually asked to see the book, never interfered in any way, uh, never directed it. It was always very clear to me this is my book and that's why I was glad I'd done biographies before. I was very clear on what I wanted. He could be interviewed by me and be part of the book in that sense. Otherwise, I would continue with the book without his interview. So, look, I love that process of actually exploring material Um, you know, going into the archives, going into the public records office here in Victoria. And I did find some extraordinary things um, that were simply not known before. To my astonishment, there hadn't actually been, you know, really full-length biography apart from Graham Freudenberg's wonderful book, um, Mm -hmm. A Certain Grandeur, Um, but but a biography that actually took it up to the dismissal and explored new material in the dismissal. Um, And there were some critical things that came from that. Um, Just on a personal level, the most astonishing thing I found in the Victorian Public Records Office was the stunning news for the Whitlam family that Gough Whitlam's grandfather had actually been in Pentridge Prison for four years as an Mm -hmm. 18-year-old. And that was unknown to him. And he was really completely shocked by that. He's named after that grandfather and he had no idea Um, And that caused quite a kerfuffle and the family then referred to it as grandfather the felon uh, Mm -hmm. forevermore. But, uh, you know, he wanted to have chapter and verse on that, um, why it happened, how it happened. Um, It was a a forgery case involving the need for money, uh, trying to look after the family when they were um, being abandoned by by his um, Mm great-grandfather. So, look, that was fascinating. But other material far more significant on a national level involved the dismissal. I think the thing to remember, and those of us who lived there will remember this this well, that the dismissal was always depicted as the solo act of a Governor-General who 
had no other choice that mm -hmm. had to dismiss the government because Whitlam wouldn't call an election, there was a block, etc. Now, what I uncovered in Kerr's papers, which are in the archives, which I opened for the first time, um, was staggering, absolutely staggering, and it told a very different story. It revealed that Kerr had colluded with others and in particular that his long-term advisor over many months, who, who even wrote a letter of dismissal for Kerr, was none other than a High Court judge, Sir Anthony Mason. Now, Mason's name had been mentioned in passing, but never in a significant way. It was always thought that the Chief Justice, Sir Garfield Barwick, was the significant legal figure behind Kerr's actions. But this showed that Mason was with him along the way. Kerr called him um, my, his guide and someone who fortified him for the action he was to take. So that was stunning. That's that's the material that was described as um, a, a find of historical significance because it did change the nature of the dismissal. It changed it from Kerr's sole decision to one that involved others, involved deception, involved secrecy. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Kerr's papers. Um, might not have been a healthy, <laughs> healthy time because he was a very, very... Uh, obsessive man, obsessed about the dismissal. Right. And it gave me a glimpse of what I now know as the palace letters. It showed glimpses of his extensive correspondence with the Queen and it increasingly became obvious to me that the Queen and her advisers had played a role in the dismissal and I was determined to get the letters that would and have shown that to us. The research is remarkable. I, I found the um, interviews he did with Gough Whitlam through the National Library and the recordings are there for anybody who wants to go and, and see the hours and hours of, of recordings and interviews. What was it like to be in the room with Gough and just listen to him talk about his life and um, particularly the, the difficult time um, leading up to the dismissal and after that? Yeah, look, he, as I said, he was extremely generous with his time. He's a, he's a very fiercely loyal person. And when I first approached him, um, his former uh, press secretary, uh, Richard Hall, was already working on a biography. And Whitlam said to me, look, I'm committed to Richard Hall's. I can't be part of this. I won't be interviewed, which I respected. And then, unfortunately, Richard Hall died um, some years later and I got back in touch with Gough Whitlam and asked to be interviewed. So it was only at that point that he agreed to be interviewed. And we did long interviews, as you say, that went over two days. And I decided very early on that even though I had my questions to put to him, it's equally as important to let him talk and tell me mm -hmm. what was important to him. I didn't want to necessarily put a pre-existing frame. I think that's been one of the problems with dismissal research is that people have assumed things, mm -hmm. often got things wrong, and then you miss what has actually happened by setting up that frame in advance. So we tended, we only had up maybe two or three of these long interviews, but I tended to let him speak for the first day, um, for, you know, it was probably three or four hours, and get a sense of what mattered to him, what he saw as the most important things. And then we were both more comfortable with exploring the very particular things I wanted to speak about the next day. And that's how it worked. And that's why there's such a lot of detail in those interviews. I, I was very grateful that I'd actually spoken to him about the dismissal at that early stage, because by the time I was working on the second volume, which was really much more about the dismissal, 
he was not as well um, mm. and he was not in a position to do those long-form interviews anymore. I frequently saw him, asked him questions, et cetera, but the longer-form interviews were not something he or I could really approach because of his health. So I had approached the dismissal in those long interviews and, um, look, I, I had so many interviews with different people, with Margaret Whitlam equally. Yes. Uh, very generous long interviews and I, I got to speak to as many of the former ministers in his cabinet that were still alive at the time. Some of the op opposition senators who were most concerned about blocking supply I spoke to. Really I reached out to as many people as I possibly could and everyone except one person said yes without hesitation. The person who said no repeatedly was the Governor-General's private secretary Sir David Smith and he's the only person for the Whitlam interview uh, for the Whitlam biography who refused to speak to me. And then he publicly criticised me at a later date for, for not speaking to him. Literally, I was in the audience at the time and was uh, able to uh, read out the dates of his emails declining to be interviewed and uh, really exposed him as someone who was prepared to say something that patently was not true in public. And, you know, that really shocked me. But, <laughs> but I would have welcomed an, an opportunity to interview and speak to David Smith. I spoke to Sir Anthony Mason, for example, mm -hmm. um, uh, even though I knew his, his involvement and, well, particularly because I knew his involvement and I was very keen to get his comments back on that. If we fast forward to 2016, so you've, we've, we've had everything happen in 1975. I think you spoke to Gough Whitlam early 2000. Was that right? Um, yes, I think around about 2000. And, well, the first volume came out in 2008, so I would have spoken to him around about 2005, 2006. So over 10 years later, so we fast forward to 2016 and tell us about the palace letters. Was was there a statute of limitations where on when you could commence legal proceedings to make the letters public or what was that process like? Look, um, there was no statute of limitations. The only limitations in our access were the the Queen, the ones set on them by the Queen, who wasn't right. letting us look at them. So we'd always known that these le these letters existed. We didn't know the nature of them. Um, you know, the word from Buckingham Palace and Government House is, oh, these are just dispatches, is the word mm -hmm. they used. Kerr mm -hmm. refers to them in his, in his memoir, that um, there were regular dispatches sent back to Buckingham Palace reporting on what's happening in Australia. Uh, 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 these are not of that kind at all. Um, and what was always said was that they are personal between the Queen and the Governor-General and therefore they're not considered part of the Archives Act, they're not considered part of the official holdings of the Australian Archives even though they're located in the National Archives. So you had this very bizarre situation where we had what were clearly some of the most important uh, documents in the dismissal history in our own archives in Canberra but we could not look at them because the Queen was saying we could not look at them. So I, where, the, the reason I was able to make an argument that they were not personal was that Kerr's private papers in the National Archives had a great deal in them about these letters he was writing to the Queen's private secretary, Sir Martin Charteris. He even referred at one point to Sir Martin Charteris's advice to me on dismissal you know, it was clear that he was getting advice from the palace as he moved towards dismissing the government. The real clincher was that I opened a personal journal of Kerr's and in that personal journal he quoted several of the letters. So he not only quoted from them, he kept 
some copies of excerpts from some of his letters to the palace. And between all of these different notations about the letters, some comments in letters to other people, for the first time I was able to actually identify some of what had been said to the palace. And it was very clear this was not personal. This was deeply, heavily political discussions Mm -hmm. as they came towards the dismissal of the Whitlam government. And it's because of those documents and others I found in the UK archives and a range of other materials that we were able to put together an argument that these are not personal, they're what's called Commonwealth records. And if they're Commonwealth records, they come under the Archives Act, which means they should be open after 30 years, which is now 20 years. That's the public access provisions. So it was not a matter of any statute of limitations, but it did mean that because they weren't considered part of the Commonwealth records, I couldn't appeal to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. So the only option and the reason I hadn't acted on it was that I had to take a federal court action. Right. Now, that's a massive undertaking, as you know. It involves a huge amount of money, um, lawyers, barristers. I mean, it's an appalling situation. It really should be addressed that if you want to appeal a decision about personal records, you have to go to the to the federal court. And that was the difficulty. And it was only because I read an article by Sydney barrister Tom Brennan and that article was headed Australia Owns Its Own Archives. It's Sorry, Australia Owns Its Own History. And mm-hmm. what he argued there from a legal perspective was that these letters should be released. They should, they should come under the Archives Act, as I'd always thought they should. And I contacted Tom and went and met him in his chambers in Sydney and out of that came a legal action. <laughs> so we go to 2020 and the palace letters were released. How did you feel about the findings? Oh, look, it was an extraordinary moment. I mean, the decision of the High Court was just, you know, you can imagine a high point of my life. It had been a four-year legal struggle. We lost at the Federal Court. We lost at the full Federal Court. Brett Walker became our barrister at the appeal. Anthony Whitlam QC, Gough Whitlam's um, eldest son, had been the barrister of the Federal Court. It was full of these wonderful circularities in our history. And by the time the court, the High Court decided 6-1 in my favour, I was just over the moon. Oh, wow. And six weeks later, the archives released them in full. Mm-hmm. So absolutely delighted. It's a wonderful decision for history. It's, a, it's actually a landmark decision in Commonwealth archival records. No mm-hmm. one has ever been able to challenge this so-called convention of royal secrecy, which they wheeled out in our case unsuccessfully claiming that anything to do with the royal family cannot be looked at unless the royal family agrees with it. Now, for an independent nation, that is surely a shocking state of affairs. Hence, I'm a Republican. So (laughs) I found this appalling. And But look, I I had such um, strong feelings when the letters were released. I was I was almost as shocked by the fact that they were worse than I imagined they would be. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what you see in front of you when you go and actually look at them in situ is hundreds and hundreds. There are 212 letters there between the two of them over this three-year period, more than any other Governors General before or since, in which they denigrate the government, they undermine the Whitlam government, they speak constantly about intensely political matters, all the things that we had been assured that the palace doesn't ever do get involved mm-hmm. in political matters is simply untrue. 
Um, and so it's quite shocking to read them. And as Malcolm Turnbull says in his wonderful forward to my book, um, The Palace Letters, um, he says that, you know, Kerr's sycophantic groveling is stomach churning. And, you know, it absolutely is. You read these and Kerr is just wracked by this sort of um, overweening deference and need for approbation from the palace. And, you know, he even asks, do you think I'm writing the right length of letters? Am I saying too much? Um, he's concerned about whether there should be the curtsy to his wife or whether how many bars of the royal anthem oh. should be played in his presence. It's humiliating and a national sort of... Uh, embarrassment to read what he is saying and the extent to which he's under the royal thumb and you know I defy anybody to read them and not come out as an arch republican because mm -hmm. it's a truly shocking moment so look in many ways they say exactly what I always imagined they they would um they show the clear um uh, uh, uh encouragement the support the the advice of the palace along the way um and in many, in many respects, they're far worse than I imagined. I did want to talk about a little more about your book. So obviously you go into great detail about the letters. It's an award-winning book, The Palace Letters, The Queen, The Governor-General and The Plot to Dismiss Gough Whitlam. It's been described as riveting and a political thriller. And there, as you said, there is a foreword by uh, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And I hear it's also being turned into a documentary. It is. I'm tremendously excited by this. Um, you know, I've often had a few little nibbles about turning various books I've done into film, but this is the first time it's actually happened, so it's a whole new experience. And it's a wonderful team, Film Art Media, um, Sue Maslin, the producer, and Daryl Delora, the director. Um, uh, film Art Media actually produced the film The Dressmaker that mm -hmm. people may be aware of, and many, many documentaries on Australian political themes, including... Um, one about um, Jornutsen and the Opera House about 15 years ago, um, an award-winning film, and another about um, Harry Seidler, the architect, only a few years ago. So, you know, a wonderful team, and I'm absolutely thrilled. Um, but, yeah, it's, look, it, it was an unusual book for me because I've, I've written many books, and as an academic I've always written, you know, in the third person, safely, <laughs> safely distanced from my subject. <laughs> and this time, for the first time, I, I had to write about a story that really involved my own journey, and it began with the word I. So this was not an easy thing for me to do. But, look, I, I, really, I really powered through it. Before and after the release of the letters, I was about halfway through the book when the High Court decision came down. We're in the middle of COVID. Um, I had to then very quickly write um, the parts of the book that dealt with the letters, what they said, what the implications of this were. And, you know, it was just a delight to do. I, 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 I'm very grateful to my publisher, Henry Rosenblum at Scribe, who encouraged me to, you know, embrace that sense that this was my story, that... It, it had involved a, a quite an extraordinary circumstance of bringing together lawyers who were prepared to work pro bono. Mm -hmm. And I must give a shout out to them because they were just phenomenal. It, it, it goes without saying it couldn't have happened without them. And that was Tom Brennan, as I said, Tom Brennan SC, Anthony Whitlam QC, KC now, got, um, Brett Walker SC and um, Cause Chambers Westgarth, and they all worked over that four-year period for mm -hmm. a pro bono basis. Um, I should point out that the case ended up costing the National Archives of Australia $1.7 million in their unsuccessful effort to keep those letters closed, and I think that is a shocking moment for the archives. 
tasked with bringing our history to life yes. to work so hard to keep those letters closed. So um, the, 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 the book takes us through that journey and it is exciting, I guess, because people have described it as a thriller, which is what <laughs> I always wanted to achieve. I love those Agatha Christie books. So, you know, they've they've come in handy, I think, in, in telling a story that is both interesting and exciting. But it also is a story about unfolding a history. I've always seen the history of the dismissal as a hidden one, to mm. some extent a secret one, and it's taken decades to get those materials out in the public domain. Um, and so it, it did two things, I think. It, it took us through a changing history. It took us through a journey to get a key part of that history into the public domain and um, I think it's been a very important corrective to the record and a great read, I have to say, in the process. <laughs> the documentary, which is going to be on um, ABC TV, should be scheduled early next year. Um, I don't yet have the, the, the actual date, but I'll certainly let you know and hopefully we can circulate it around the ARM group once we've got that. Oh, that would be wonderful. I know I'll, I'll be looking forward to that. Just before we go, I did want to ask... You do you think it will be a long journey for us to become a republic? <laughs> That's a great question. Look, I, I'm strangely optimistic. I guess I have to be an optimistic person to have, you know, to to enjoy Australian political matters so much sometimes. But but no, look, what really gives me heart is to see the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese sticking so determinedly to things that he said he would do yes. in his electoral campaign. And chief among them is, is the referendum on the voice to parliament. Mm -hmm. um, he has been steadfast in that and made that a, a, his, his first priority as a referendum, and I think quite properly so. Um, and he has also said at the time of the election and soon after that a referendum on a republic would follow that as, a, as, as the second referendum should he come in for a second term. And I think that sequencing is absolutely appropriate. Mm -hmm. We also have, of course, for the first time, um, an assistant minister for the Republic in Matt Thistle's way. And so I think there are a lot of signs here that we have the sort of strong government support for a Republic that we haven't had in the past. Mm -hmm. It's a huge shift also that we now have King Charles III of Australia. We never did have King Charles I or the second, but nevertheless, we now have King Charles III of Australia. Mm -hmm. And I think the title itself shows the incongruity of that notion for a democratic nation. Um, so I'm hopeful that if we have this debate, and it will be an extremely important one in a second term of an Albanese government, that it will be as part of a referendum for a republic. And, yeah, I'd be extremely hopeful that this time around we can finally say that we choose our own head of state, that it's not something chosen by birthright for one family alone, which mm -hmm. surely is an absurd notion um, for a great egalitarian nation like Australia, um, and that we can move forward. Uh, whether we have a president or continue with the name Governor-General, I actually don't have a problem with that. I think the bigger issue by far is what are the powers that that person ought to have, yes. and I think the issues that still remain surrounding the events of 1975 should be a very, very strong guide to how we ensure parliamentary control over our choice of government and not head of state control. Thank you for joining us, Professor Jenny Hocking. I could stay and talk to you all day. My pleasure, Evelyn. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you for having me today.
Listeners, to find out more and the latest um, news on the Australian Republic movement, you can visit the website republic.org.au and to uh, find out about the Palace Letters, the book. Or any good bookshop or subscribe publications in Melbourne. And I would encourage people if they feel like having deep pockets to look at the Australian documentary side and look up the search for the Palace Letters. Post-production funding is needed now. Yes, please. Thank you, listeners, for being part of the conversation. And thank you again, Professor Hocking. Thank you.